Hello, dear listeners. You're about to drop right in to my office and a conversation we were having because we didn't realize we were being recorded before we started the next episode. So feel free to listen in to our conversation about Jason getting his deceased mother's desk and some other things or skip to four minutes and 20 seconds and jump into the show. Thank you. It up. You know, when I was in California, I had food poisoning one night, Uh-oh. and I was up all night waiting to throw up. That's a terrible and, feeling. Uh, I heard on NPR this program about old friends getting together, playing guitar. That's what my friends and I used to do. Yeah. At that moment, I crawled across the floor, threw up a ton. <laughs> I never wanted to play guitar with my friends again. I, never, I don't think I've done it since. That was funny. That's how metaphors work. Uh, yeah, it was right like, <laughs> so I guess when I, I wonder, reading that line, I wonder if that had some sort of profound imprinting. Mm-hmm. So when I got my mother's desk, I wanted my mother's writing desk when she died. Yeah. And then it was, my dad was like, what do you want? You can take anything you want. I'm like, I'm not taking like, you know, furniture out of the house, like leaving giant holes in your house. But then he and his wife, his new wife, like renovated. And then I was talking to my little brother and he had the desk. So I had him ship me the desk. Mm-hmm. In shipping me the desk, it's a secretary desk. It got, the, the key got lost. Mm-hmm. So I had my mother's desk, mm-hmm. but I couldn't open it. Wow. Okay, so that, that's the perfect metaphor, right? Right. Mm-hmm. But I was at my sister-in-law's and I said, hey, I bet that key might work on that desk. So I got my sister-in-law's key and I used it and it opened the desk and now the desk is open. And wow. so, and there's no metaphor there, right? Mm-hmm. Like my sister-in-law gave me the key to my mom's desk. Yeah. Like it's not a metaphor. Like I have my mom's desk, but I can't open it as a metaphor. And I want to like yeah. write something about like the stupidness of metaphors. Was there but, anything like, in there that was fascinating? Yeah. 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 Um, I mean, I knew it was in there because it was my mom. I mean, like I, I've known this desk my whole life. Uh, there could be a secret. Well, we'll talk yeah. when we have time to talk. A friend of mine is going through something right now where they found out a big secret about her parents. And she has all the uh, like key to a safe that would give her the answer, and she can't go on the safe. But, but it, metaphor and need—that seems yeah. to be where the the right. truth of it is. It's like your need for meaning, right, versus like a reader's need for a metaphor explaining. Well, it's like right? the stupid thing, which seems to so obviously mean something that it doesn't, and mm-hmm. then the solution is so clearly vacuous mm-hmm. that like you open I, it up and you're like, "Love's for nothing." Like it should, it should just. <laughs> Well, it's, or like we were talking about the, your friends and the diaries, right? Yeah. And looking for me to solve. It's yeah. She needed there to be something important in it. Yeah. yeah. So would you say John Blair? John Blair. Okay. There's three and by John Blair. Okay. So, um, ready when you are, Amber? Yeah. So let's do three by John Blair. And if there's, if, if we need more time to fill, we still have. John Lee Germain. Yeah. Yeah. I found this recording of these suits are made for walking in French. It's so good. And it translates to Ces boots sont faites pour marcher. You are for marcher. Yeah, I would agree with that. 
Oh my god, it's like a, I had a routine to that song when I was about four years old. A routine? I had a, I had a whole yeah. dance routine. All right, we're doing that in the backyard. There will be a show. I had white vinyl go-go boots when I was like four years old. They zipped up. That's a, look. Does that even surprise you? Probably not. No. Kind of who I still am. I'm sad you won't fit into the mechanism. Wait, so what did we start with? Well, Blair? here's the thing. I didn't say hi. I think we should leave this all in, though. I really do. These books are made for walking with six dancers doing the routine with the original video with Cindy Lauper and Sandra Bernhardt. Oh, but isn't it really? It's um Sinatra's Nancy Sinatra, isn't yeah, it the original? Um, yeah. yeah, she did the original. So she's she's doing it with with Cindy Lauper mm-hmm. and a, a host of dancers in the original outfits doing the dance, and she's on Nancy Sinatra, who sounds like shit anyway, mm-hmm. is on the front of the stage taking pictures of the dancers while Cindy Lauper sings her lines, and it's like, Nancy, do you want to sing there? Uh, uh, okay, we are definitely keeping this all in the episode. We're finding the link. We're going to put it on the page. Okay, we are already recording. So, listeners, you know what you're listening to? You are listening to the Painted Red Quarterly Slush Pile. Uh, the re- <laughs> and the reason why we're already deep into crazy conversation is because we are all together in the same space, which never gets to happen. Um, there's, But now you're going to hear a few episodes where I say that. So this is uh, no longer the first episode we've recorded. It's the second, but we're, um, here we are. All together in my uh, blue cinder block office, and the me that has taken over is Kathleen Volkmiller. I run the uh, graduate program in publishing here at Drexel University, what where color? we all are. What color do you call this blue? I think you should call it that. No, can I tell you really the reason this blue? I wanted blue. And looking at the color wheel, I was torn between several blues, and this one was called Transcendent Blue. Nice. So, like, salt. Nice. That's my blue. I was going to go with a G in blue. A G in blue. I thought this was a G in blue. What I like this is, is that called Transcendent Blue. blue. Match. Right. <laughs> Today, your, not your, always. Your blues are coordinated. They're very coordinated. <laughs> yeah, well, um, loyal listeners will know that my office is cinder block. I have zero windows. I sometimes go online to see what the weather's like. Mm-hmm. It's just so sad, <laughs> but true. And um, so anyway, that's why I picked Transcendent Blue, because I figured I need to be transported. Yeah, and I have to say, I feel really great in this space. I don't mind being here at all, which mm-hmm. is weird. And I think if it was like cream-colored cinder block like everybody else has, I would go a bit mad. I have no windows in my office at work, and yeah. it's beautiful. Well, they felt you know. badly about how long they made me wait for an office. So once they gave me an office, they let me choose a color. Yeah. And I did. Love and it. here we are. Love so um, so that's me. And I'm so happy to say that on my right side is Marion Wren, who is here in the same time zone. Hey, so nice to be in your time zone. I'm Marion. Um, I uh, run the writing program at NYU Abu Dhabi, where I do have a window in my office. Um, mm. But it's also sieged by pigeons. <laughs> There's a Ooh. whole flock of pigeons that they, they just sort of like hang out and procreate. 
So it's nice. like a pigeon farm. And so when people Whoa. sit in my office, it's really funny, right? So people sit in my office. That's a at few. My, I'm at my desk and they're trying to focus on me, but they're <laughs> pigeons fucking me all the time. Is it just cloaca? They just, they just rub cloaca. It's disgusting. Like, like bird sex is revolting. And pigeon sex. So it's really hard to like have meetings in my office. So lovely to be here um, in this office where there are no, no pigeons. <laughs> okay, I have to tell everybody this. <laughs> I have to. What? I was waiting after I just recently saw you in New York, and yeah. then I was waiting for the Volt bus to come home. There was a girl sitting on the ground, and she was on her laptop, and there were pigeons on the ledge above, and a pigeon shit on <gasps> her keyboard. <laughs> And I am talking oh. major explosion on her keyboard. Oh, no. <laughs> but do you know what happened? Can you imagine what happened? Mm-mm. Unified, all these strangers that were in their own freaking devices, not looking at each other. Everybody was just like, love and compassion to you. I have a tissue. I have sanitizing. Everybody contributed. We were suddenly a community. Helping Aww, this girl see? with the pigeon shit on the keyboard. That does not make it better. God. Yes, it does. God it's a beautiful story. It's a beautiful is, story. God bless America. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone helped her. It was, That's and nice. actually, like, it really did change the tone of everyone. Like, I'm in line A, I'm in line B, I'm in front of you. Yeah. All that stuff stopped. stopped. I'm not sure if this is for keyboards, but I hear you get hit. Um, it's good luck. Oh, that's yeah, that's totally. what they they say. That's what your mother tells you. Don't feel like that about the horror. Just leave it rains on your wedding day. That's it's good luck. Eternal <laughs> <laughs> match. All right. So, to my so that happened. Cherie. Cherie just said hello. Hello, Cherie. <laughs> hello. Um, this is Cherie, and I just said um, I am a director student here in the co-op for DPG and DPQ and all those acronyms and all that stuff. Um, and I'm a junior. You're studying global things at Drexel. Woohoo! So, all right, it's Jason Schneiderman. Jason Schneiderman. Hello, I am Jason Schneiderman. I am an associate professor of English at the Borough of Manhattan Community <laughs> College in Manhattan. And I am very happy to be in Philadelphia. And I love Philadelphia. Like, I really, I loved the skyline. Like, driving to Philadelphia this morning when I saw the skyline, I was like, that is a beautiful skyline. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I've been working on it. Well done. <laughs> well done, Gabli. <laughs> and to my right is I teach freshman writing here at Drexel, and I've been reading with the Standard Writing Quarterly for about four years. Woohoo! Sitting across from me. <laughs> I already said hi. Yes, and Amber's here. So Amber. Amber's is here on the soundboard. She's she's jamming the tunes for us today. <laughs> What's it called? You know that. DJ? Yeah, I don't know. I was trying to think of some good words. She's the only one with big headphones on. I expect her any minute to just start. All right. So today, on this episode, we are discussing three poems by John Blair, and um, I think we should get right down to it. The first one is called Degrees. I volunteer Cherie to read it. Oh, hey, yeah. Well hey. Good job, Cherie. <laughs> Thank you. Um, John Blair, Degrees. 
<laughs> they say there are just six between any two of anyone for as far as random can reach, which of course is everywhere, sincere to centigrade. The Lord. The Lord. I'm sorry, it's my. Can I start over? Please? Yes, you sure. can. My, my Spanish language skills were messing up with my English. That's <laughs> why <laughs> like, you would say it in Spanish. The Lord. Lord. English. Okay. All right. John Blair, degrees. They say there are just six between any two of anyone, for as far as random can reach, which of course is everywhere. Sincere to centigrade, the Lord to doctorate add to infinitum, so much of how much is who's, who's looking. Here's a small slice of lightness to, to lift, a wave to touch every other wave wherever there's water to well, and cool and slide into green depths where the sunlight fades in such slow degrees, you have to close your eyes to even know it's gone. Uh, nice reading. Thank you. That poem reads like a slip and slide. <laughs> oh, I love those um, the images at the end there. It mm -hmm. feels really good. Um, since I'm always the one that talks about formatting, these are um, three line stanzas with the middle line uh, a tab in. Oops, and I just lied because the second one's four. Oh, no, it's all over the place. You're just going to have to go to the page <laughs> and see this poem. Yeah, no, there's a pattern. There's a pattern. Yeah. 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 Three, five, three. But uh, with different varying indents. Yeah. <clears throat> which does add to the title degrees and the mm -hmm. slip and slidey feel. Mm -hmm. um, I think. Mm -hmm. I think the form on this one's already really apparent. Right, of why this choice is made. They say there are just six between any two. I just took thought me the a second. Of six degrees of separation. Yeah, it did. It's pretty good. I mean, I love that play, but I think it's all made up, right? I mean, like the whole six degrees of separation, the John, the the, the, the serial killers who killed because of um, Catcher in the Rye. Like, I don't think any of that's true. It's what, all the, what the what? I don't know the second half of what you're saying. I did think the six degrees of separation is true, but I don't know what you're talking about with the serial killers. Oh, it's it's in six degrees of separation. The con artist mm -hmm. tells everyone that his dissertation is about how capture in the rye is incredibly popular on serial killers, and serial killers always attribute their murders to capture in the rye. And I don't think it's true. I think it's all just like there's a lot of like oh. stuff in six yeah. degrees of separation that we now kind of talk about as though it were it's like no that's just in six degrees of separation right. play it's not real so who who's side note who's in the revival right now Allison Janney oh and um oh I wish I could remember the name of the two male leads okay. I can't I just remember the film I never saw it on the stage. I loved this film. It's well said for the film. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I have to say, like, a lot of it has stuck with me through the years. That is why I love the yeah. first stanza okay. of this, right? So you've got the title, Operating Your Head Degrees. Okay, what's this poem about? And then they say there are just six. And right there, your brain goes degrees of separation, right? Like, if you have that cultural knowledge, like, your brain is doing that work, right? Between any two of us, anyone for as far line break as random can reach, which, right? And now it's like those line breaks are sort of playing with the pleasure of the penny dropping right like yeah. so it's like you had that one moment of recognition and now that recognition gets forestalled at the end of these lines and then delivered in the following line and that's kind of delightful um as it rolls right into what seems like a sort of wacky set of connections sincere to centigrade dolor to doctorate 
add to Instantitum? Yeah, you know, I think the reading was fabulous, but it was fast for trying to digest all of this. I was like, yeah. what? You know, it was mm-hmm. really so much of how much is who's looking. Mm-hmm. What? What's the principle? Right? Like I would just stop and say it again, slowly. Right? That's the Heisenberg, isn't it? I think so. Well, Heisenberg is that you can only know the speed or the location. Right. And then by the act of looking, you're impacting the answer to either. Yeah. I thought the act of looking was like something else. But the point, the point is, is that I had, I was like, what? And I had to go, right, go back in. Fundamentally true that in physics, when you, the fact that you're looking at, observing things changes them, there's no such thing as an impartial observer. In physics, you can't, just looking changes them. Or as humanists say, read a response theory. Right, like there's a way in which it just sort no, of like clinks right down the there. <laughs> no, I don't. Th- I don't. But but to speak to what you just said, I just heard a podcast the other day that like seventy percent of what we perceive we're making up, seventy percent, because we're so we're so we're just okay, Laura. Okay, listeners, because you we're see trying space right now. Not even just seventy percent. Seventy percent. That's not a real number. I think that is a real number. You know how I think they could do these kinds of studies, like the same. You know, they have a dude run down a street and grab a purse, and then they ask everybody what the dude looked like, and everybody has completely different stories. That's what I'm talking about. Is perception so much of how much is who's looking, right? You. How do you have seventy percent of the description of a person? Like, how do you quantify that? What my would description? I, I can't quantify. Like, it. Yes, you totally can. Amber, you're gonna have to cut all this off. No, no, no. We're just gonna link to that podcast in the show notes okay. and get back to this call. Degrees. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I'll explain it to you okay. later. I know exactly how you can do it. But anyway, we will link to it. And we'll then, link to that podcast. I like that the poem wears the intellect on its sleeve. I like that the poem is very engaged with contemporary theories of knowing and is also kind of working with um, the sounds of like sincere disintegrate to lure to doctrine mm-hmm. at infinite. Right? These are all like sound play. Mm-hmm. Whereas like most of the poem is kind of informed by theories of knowledge. Right. Yeah. But it does it in this sort of light and witty way. And there's a pun on light, because if you look at here's a small slice of lightness to lift a wave to touch, now wave gets repeated. So you've got the sort of like physics of light embedded in the poem. Yeah. And, and it's, it's lovely and lightly done. Uh-huh. And, and what I what I really <laughs> did too is at the end, so we're doing all these abstract theories and you have to have this other knowledge to fully get this poem, right? And that it ends with something as simple and real and beautiful as a sunset, mm-hmm. right? That you, now let's bring it to how we all experience it, mm-hmm. you know? Um, fades in such slow degrees, you have to close your eyes to even know it's gone. Mm-hmm. Very nice. Tim. Tim. <laughs> well, <laughs> sorry. I like all of the things that we're getting to from the poem. Mm-hmm. When I, I don't know, the six degrees of separation. I just think of like that irritating Facebook thing we get from people we're not really friends with and say like, "Would you like to join this oh, Facebook activity?" Yeah. And I, so it's a little unfair to the writer. I'm sure this writer didn't get the idea from that, but all that from that point, I think. Oh, I'm now I'm at Facebook and I'm irritated. Mm. You know, you project so much. That's okay. Okay. But we all do. It's all perception. I'm not gonna. 
And that's about 70% of everything. <laughs> I can project it on the phone, but I'm not going to hold everything against the poem. I try to to uh, discern what I should and shouldn't hold against the poem. Right? So, right. so I'm gonna so I like the things. I'm gonna give the writer a pass on that, but I'm I'm not crazy about the sound play as much as everybody mm. else is. I, I get why people like it, but for me it's just a flavor that I don't really appreciate that much. But I like the idea of getting to these conversations about the moment you look at something, it changes. So poems that can get me to that place. Mm. I don't really care so much. As long as it's not too obnoxious, I like that it got me there because that's where I like to be. Mm-hmm. You, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So and now I'm trying to think, oh, just please let this poet not have gotten the six degrees thing from Facebook. <laughs> right? No. I'm, trying to forgive, I'm trying to forgive these moments. I, so oh, I don't even know what you're talking. I still don't even know what you're talking about, and I know I'm on Facebook more than you are. Something that I get. Do you know what he's talking about? Yeah. I have no idea what the Facebook connection is with the six degrees. No, I remember it. I mean, I, I, I kind of halfway paid attention to it and then ignored it. Right. So. It, it was like, I don't know, something about songs or, or something. I don't know. Like, is it like if I want to be friends with Lady Gaga, can I figure out like the six people? Like, something yeah, along those lines or something. It's banal. It's like, you know, like, who, which of these rock concerts am I yeah. lying about going right. to? Like, well, that would be premised on me. What's that got to do with six degrees of separation? I saw that, but I didn't, I don't know what it has to do oh, with I six degrees. I think it's in the same wheelhouse as whatever, like, you know, six degrees thing yeah. game that, that Tim's talking about there. Oh. Yeah. So, well, anyway, I wonder, I Facebook never popped in my mind. I, I wonder. If I, I, but I, we I, only have thirty percent of what we're perceiving right. in common, so that's why. Wait, I gotta ask Jason. All right, Jason, jump in on that, right? Just, I know we're gonna go back to it. No, it's an obsession. It, it's it's a contemporary obsession with quantifiable data mm-hmm. and trying to put numbers on things which do Listen, not. Deserve it's to it's easy. Right now, you're making me answer you. If you have the dude run down the street and grab the bag, this is right. the most concise way I can think of to say it. And then you interview the 40 people that right. saw it happen. Those 40 people are gonna have 30 percent of what they say in common and 70% not in common. That's probably one of the ways they began to get that number, that data. Do you follow me? Sure. So so we only have a commonality of 30% of what we're experiencing. Yeah. Okay, but if, if you're counting details people said, right? So like we can count one person said green shirt, one person said red shirt, one person right, said right, blue eyes, one right. person said green eyes, one person said um, seven feet tall, sure, one sure, person sure. said two feet tall. Um, these are not each equally weighted pieces of description. I'm making this shit up, though. No, no, but that's my point. I don't know how they tested, but I'm imagining it would be things like that. So, like that, you got to see what's in common to see what isn't in common. Right, but to right? quantify it, it, to say yeah. like these pieces, yeah. you have to determine how to weight them. So, they may have. But wait, uh, let me let me jump in and just like try to pull these two things together for a moment. So I think that's a truth that lawyers know because eyewitness testimony is always the least reliable, absolutely, the most persuasive, absolutely, trials, right? And then sort of connected to that, right, is the sense of like the quantifiability of here is part of what makes a game like 
six degrees of separation so much fun because it feels like there's something quantifiable and scientific, but really what you're operating is from a place of like belief, right? And belief work always feels like a kind of knowledge, but really it's just your brain and your heart, like hoping that shit's real, right? Yeah. So that I think in some ways, the way the poem works, it starts with this like folk, folk, folk knowledge, right, of degrees of separation, activates all these other theories of knowing, and then winds up in this sort of glorious experience of a sunset. So I think it's a sort of lovely little arc. Little arc is, it reduces. <laughs> right. Because the poem just sort of, you know, expands outward in that way. Yeah, yeah. I really love yeah, the moves of the poem. Jump in and bring us back to the poem. Yeah. I just brought us back to the poem. <laughs> no, but it's perfect. It's perfect. It's perfect that you did because it's all everything we're talking about is actually related to this poem. And what I like the most about it is that it does go all the way out. We all have all these interpretations and then it comes to an experience that is universal. Right? <laughs> Sheree. Is it universal to a postmodernist? Go ahead, Sheree. Universal. <laughs> Discuss. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know. I'm just gonna keep. I'm gonna be. I love the shape of it. I love what it does. And I love that it brings it to a natural experience. That you know. Yeah. Yeah. The natural experience, I think, is definitely essential because a lot of the. Um, like the references I didn't get, I guess, because I'm not like, I'm kind of like in my own world most of the time. So I don't, (laughs) okay, six degrees of separation. That sounds vaguely familiar, but don't have enough context. I wanted to ask you, uh, you both, the the youngins in the room, (laughs) if six degrees of separation is even as meaningful to you as it is to us. It is. It's the movie. Yeah. 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 Even though it's so old now. That's interesting. Yeah. It's a a quintessential movie. It's a what? Like, I've heard it too where it's like the separation between you and the president. Right. Oh, yeah. Right. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Like, there was like no context for me. Yeah. Right. Right. No, that makes sense. I was curious how much relatability there would be in that. Mm -hmm. Right. So, yeah, so it's essential that he gets to where he gets to at the end. Mm-hmm. What do you think? Should we vote? You want to talk more? I'm ready to vote personally. Yeah, I we've got nods. We've got nods from the sofa. Okay. And loyal listeners, you should see this, right? We've got three editors curled up on the sofa with their fists in the air, ready to vote. <laughs> yeah, they look. Jason looks a bit more like right? he's gonna punch me. <laughs> <laughs> then he's gonna put his thumb up or down. It looks like it's going straight out, don't it? Exactly. We should start doing that. That is how we vote. If you're present, with your thumbs, and if you're from Far, it's with like emojis, right? Right, right. It's a little like thumbs up. Emoji, right? Yeah. Yeah. Ready? One, two, three. Both. Ah. Oh, it's in. But you know, like I think it actually speaks to the poem. I never taught the. It's it's in by degrees. (laughs) Let's just leave it there. But thank you, John Blair. Very happy to have that poem. Thank you. And, um, yeah, that's what it's all about, right? Perception is everything. So we could do the math on the vote, but <laughs> I'm not going <laughs> to. No more numbers. <laughs> um, 
Okay, so this is a, a, another poem by John Blair, and it also has some interesting um, formatting to it, and it's called Pink Noise. Anybody? Anybody want to? Tim's doing it. Tim's doing it. Pink Go noise. Tim. It's just white noise with all the higher frequencies polished down like mountains, worn to humble or close enough to count sheer as wine stains purpling the skin. You're sleepless going on. It's supposed to be soothing, so you listen like you are good. Boy told to do in the small wheeze of waiting for your mind. Go on without you into dreaming, but those little bumps are voices, and they are breathless with glee. And the best you can do is listen and try not to worry about your better self with good intentions all the ways you've managed so many years to sleep easily and well among the pale beasts of worry. To watch and wait neither blood nor snow, but a mist of in-between the deep ground down to spindles to gnaw your nervy edges and the stubborn wakefulness like a tree climb to watch the other kids play, blind to what's coming, what's been what's been what might in some other when no when matter and no one notices your presence or your lucid absence. Or the pastel grumbling of wind in the treetops, or the bows, or the boughs beginning like morning light to break. Ah, that was tricky. Thank you for that reading. Yeah. Um, so, uh, listeners, again, you can see this poem on our podcast page, and I think you should have a look. Um, we, we have to say this, I think, from the get-go, that Tim read a word entirely different than what was on the page. Oh, which word is that? And so, to okay. me, that actually speaks to what we were just saying about the other poem. Yeah. The, the one, two, third, fourth stanza. Um, is, uh, and they are, uh, I'm going to start a little higher in four, and they are breathless with glee, and the best you can do is listen and try not to argue about your better self, your good intentions, all the ways you've managed so many years to sleep easily. And Tim, instead of argue, you said worry. Oh, really? Which is fascinating. 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 You should sleep easily and well among the pale beasts of worry. Like, there's something about, like, the the way you flipped that verb that anticipated the next verb, right? Yeah. That's cool. And try not to argue about your better self. Mm -hmm. I think for a time, with the, the way the line breaks cut against the syntax, mm-hmm. I found it, it actually kind of made the poem really hard to read. Mm-hmm. But it, it, even, even though I know where all of the syntax is, until I get to, there are a couple places, like um, the other kids play blind to what's coming. I guess it just has to be the other kids play blind to what's coming. Mm-hmm. And that line break made it really, I, I was trying to figure out if it was like a Matea Harvey thing where it was like a swivel where it like mm-hmm. works in both pieces of syntax independently. Mm-hmm. But um, I don't know. A lot of the a lot of the um, hmm. the breaks weren't working for me. They actually made it confusing hmm. um, rather than kind of interesting. I so I want to jump in and say um, the experience of the poem called "Pink Noise" and the fact that it's a sentence long and covers that many stanzas really is um, like taxing on the the listener 
um, but perhaps intentionally so, because it is called this like pink noise, not white noise, like pure static, right. but this sort of like in-between place where you're kind of able to make sense and kind of not able because of all the distractions that are sort of like, like pulled into the line of the poom, right? right. And, and the, or rather the arc of the poem. So you think pink, isn't pink noise just warmer, white noise? Is it? Right? It's got all the higher frequencies. All the higher Polished frequencies. Down, like mountains. Worn Do you down. know, Amber? What's pink noise? Sound technician? It's warm white noise. Right? Oh, I don't want to put you on the spot. I'm sorry. Don't know. I like I have been told. <laughs> no, it's fine. It's fine. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I think like the other poem that we just did by him, I think this needs to be read super, super slowly. I think that it would be um, having the experience of both reading it before we even met today and then hearing it right now. It isn't, it isn't meant to, to be heard or it's hard to hear, right? It's ironically, big noise is hard to hear. On the page, one can consume at one's pace and kind of, you know, um, deconstruct or digest or whatever words we want to use, like understand, let's just say understand as one goes along, right? Hearing it, I think, was was much more difficult. Well, there, there are these pieces kind of, like if you look in, it, it sort of starts around the second stanza with, like you were good boy told to do in the small ways of waiting for your mind to go on without you into dreaming. Mm-hmm. Right? Right. So that's the space where we're kind of moving past something that's kind of a transparent syntax into something right. just kind of announcing itself and making these demands on the reader and those kind Absolutely. of like Hopkins-like, mm-hmm. you know, unexpectedness that remains intelligible mm-hmm. but i don't know i i wasn't like it, it didn't really work for me mm-hmm. um, like you were a good boy told to do in the small ways of waiting for your mind yeah but it's like for me the the herky jerkiness of the yeah. the lines right before that right were making me like do i do i trust this right do i can i go with this and then it sort of tumbles into what feels like a more sort of like smoother experimentation in this passage that you read so for instance um you know, worn down like mountains, worn to humble or close enough to count sheer as wine stains purpling the skin. And now here's where I get tangled, right? The purpling the skin of your sleepless going on. It's supposed to be soothing. So you listen like you were a good boy told to do in this, right? And so right, right there, it becomes, it sort of tightens into its weirdness yeah. and I'm able to go. But right before that, on your sleepless going on, like, what? Like, what the, what the who? Like, I'm not, I can't quite get into the groove of it. And then it grooves into a kind of Hopkins-esque weirdness. I was, I was kind of trying to think, because, like, in some ways it does recreate the the failures of falling asleep in a certain mm-hmm. kind of insomnia, mm-hmm. where, yeah. you know, like, like that, that <laughs> that's what I read is that, yeah, yeah. that yeah. sleepless but, going on, mm-hmm. the sleepless going on. Mm-hmm. That, that's what I, somebody like right, It's supposed to be soothing, so you listen, right. Right. right? I think that line's genius, the way where it sits too, because it also sort of reassures the reader. It's supposed to be soothing, so you listen. It kind of makes me go, okay, all right, so, okay, I'm listening, right? You got me, right? Right. So, I'm I'm confused a little between, so the. I, I can appreciate what the poem is doing with the uh, form, like stringing along that one sentence, like 70% of it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because as, by, by the time you get to the wind might and some other, so I feel like a little 
ticked off at that point because it's like I've been I've played this game mm-hmm. and you're doing your part great mm-hmm. and then now you you're gonna throw all these W's and win matters at me mm-hmm. I'm done <laughs> right but I like the thing that's happening up until then but I'm I'm confused a little bit between that sort of play with the words and the style and the title Pink Noise because Pink mm-hmm. Noise seems to uh, seems to define what the poem also is going to be doing. I don't know what the, where the pink noise is in the poem. The pink noise, if white noise is this, when you turn on, back in the days when I had TVs, when you turn on a random channel, it would go, yeah. pink noise right. is, it's just right. low, it's a, about an octave lower. Mm-hmm. White noise is all frequencies. You could, right, I mean, you can get that app immediately and have that sound to right. try to fall asleep. Right, but right. I don't really, but but the the stringing along that one sentence seems to do something so different than that that it. I'm still thinking, where's the pink noise? Where the pink noise? Oh, I, I see. Kinda, I get kind of confused between I, the title. Uh, this is this is helpful to me. This conversation too, because like the premise seems to be that this that this person right is 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 trying to go to sleep and is is insomniac and using pink noise to do so. So it's like a motivated pink noise, like pink noise in the context of someone going to sleep. So yeah. it's so that that right? Like so that the difference then is like the long sentence is actually performing the 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 falling into sleep maybe. Yeah. Or the the inability to fall asleep yeah. because yeah. we end with yeah. or the bowels beginning like morning light to break. Yeah. So you didn't because the there. poor guy's still laying there. Right. You know, as an insomniac, um, I'm all about this poem. Mm. And I mm. think it absolutely executes mm. the feeling, the frustration. You're uh between between with teeth ground down to spindles to gnaw your nervy edges into stubborn wakefulness like a tree you've climbed to watch the other kids play. Blind. Yeah. That's, that's well, I right. just wanted to stop there. Yeah. Because yeah. that's, that's, yeah. that's a syntactic unit. Right. Yeah. 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 Does it all have to be one sentence? I think because this this person laying there with this wakefulness and trying so desperately to fall asleep and it it just keeps continuing right. you know what i mean like right. that that reaching for sleep that right. desperation for sleep so and i, I just want to say the reason i chimed blind in there because you did read the syntactical unit but the break doesn't happen until after blind so i don't know why other than to annoy the annoy the re- that ear do you know what i mean or, or the eye on the page yes so uh, so like i i want to understand that this the person in the poem is annoyed by all this and is yes. frustrated, but I don't want to feel the frustration in the sixth paragraph uh, of the yeah. stanza. I, I really like yeah. the stanza structure, right? Because mm-hmm. we have six line stanzas, the first, um, second, and fourth line of each stanza is left justified, mm-hmm. and then those other lines that interweave go back and forth between mm-hmm. um, one and two indents, right? And so it kind of gives you this shape, which is actually quite regular, but looks mm-hmm. very irregular on the page yeah. because mm-hmm. it's being broken up in yeah. this way. Um, but then the, the syntax doesn't work for me, the way the syntax is being broken across them. And I, and I love this form, mm-hmm. but then places like like blind, it's just too harsh of a break for me at the end of that line to start the next unit mm-hmm. of syntax. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Okay, I didn't hear you, but I disagree. What is it? What is it? Well, look, hon, blind to what's coming, what's been, what might, what might, and some other. You know, and earlier the speaker had said, I used to be able to sleep, and now I can't sleep. And, you know, and every night you go to bed with hopefulness that tonight's the night you're going to sleep. So are the other kids play blind to the fact that they're going to have insomnia? Stop running away from us. Like, like a tree if climbed to watch the other kids. I'm the only one that's up. The loneliness of insomnia is pretty brutal, too. That's yeah, so the, so the blind, though, refers to the kids. So the, the kids are blind to what's coming, to what's been, and then it sort of pushes back to the speaker what's, what might and some other would matter, and no one notices your presence or your lucid absence. Yeah. Right? And so it comes back into this sort of, like, narcissistic, wounded, you know, sleeplessness. Well, it's pretty lonely to be mm-hmm. sleepless, mm-hmm. right? And so... And wanting sleep, right? right? Yeah. We were just yeah. talking about this. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And the stakes are high because now all this research is coming out about how harmful it is for your brain to not sleep. So mm-hmm. you're laying right. you're thinking, oh my gosh, I got I need to wash yeah. my brain. And the more you're saying, I gotta sleep, I gotta sleep, I gotta sleep, yeah. I gotta sleep, you're not gonna sleep. Right. <laughs> That's why for me it's all yeah. one sentence too, because, because you don't get that actual sleep. Well, yeah. Yeah. It's like the more you chase it, the farther away it runs, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I really the thing that I really don't like about this film is just that one stanza. The one where I was having trouble reading, it was just having trouble processing it. And I just wish that I could read the reader, the writer's frustration instead of feeling it there. Mm-hmm. But everything else, I like being pulled along. And I was mm-hmm. surprised because I was as I was going, I think I'm gonna not like this soon. But I can't <laughs> Mm-hmm. Until I didn't like it, and then, then I liked it. Once I got past that little break, it just seemed like you could edit that. Mm-hmm. One could edit it. One could. Shall we vote? Or one could vote. One, one could, could vote. vote. Let's, let's do that. One, two, three, vote. <laughs> oh, it didn't make mm. it. Just listen, listen to me, John Blair. If you're projecting insomnia. I'm, I'm so happy for you. I hope you don't really suffer from this. But if you are, listen to the Sleep With Me podcast. I was waiting for you to plug the Sleep With Me podcast. Sleep With Me podcast. I have mentioned it before. I will mention it again. It's been life-changing. I sleep with Scooter. <laughs> Did you wake up with headphones? No, I just I have, just have it on. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And um, yeah, and it's been life changing. So thank you, Scooter. John, try it. Okay. And we've got one more from John Blair, the giving tree. Can I do it? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. John Blair, the giving tree, doesn't care for your gifts or your attitude, frankly, and wonders why you beg and grovel, boy, when all she wants is to be left the hell alone because there are no apples here, only thorns, and her wood is her own, and she's just fine exactly where she is, and the woods are no place for the faithless likes of you anyway, which is why they had to put up that gate to keep you out and set a bouncer with a burning, ever-turning sword to tell you you're not welcome in your fig leaves and weeping wounds. She's here for a reason, but that reason isn't you, 
and the junk hidden in her trunk is just squirrels' nests and fairy bones, and those birds who loiter love her in ways you never do. So trust her when she tells you she has no need for a needy boy like you. Beautifully read. Well <laughs> Thanks, John Blair. That was so super fun. Can I do it again? <laughs> okay. So, mm-hmm. wow, we all know the giving trait. Yep. We do. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Do we? Do we? Do we know the giving trait? Oh, yeah. I think that's a very popular. Yeah. yeah. Very, very popular in um, grade school. Yeah. A lot of people. Of course, Tim. I hate everything. Yeah. Oh, and why? Every yeah. Amber, delete, delete, delete. I mean, do you know all this stuff? I mean, do you know, like, Gary in my shades? Do you know how there's another espresso? Like, I'm not do you sure. Know this all right, we're going to talk about this poem. So to take something as as uh, universal as the giving tree and personify uh, her in this way and have her really, you know, be anti this needy boy. Uh, a risk, brave, silly. Yes, no. So, sorry. It's it, what I like is the personifications from the side, right? So that the the speaker of the poem is speaking for the giving tree yeah. rather than a first person narrative. And I say that because mild non sequitur. I just saw um, Lucas Knapp's uh, Doll's House Part 2, where he imagines Nora 15 years oh, after so. having left. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, did you ever see it? Uh, it's a play. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's hysterical. And Laurie Metcalf is, and Chris funny. Cooper, fantastic in it. Precisely the same question. is like, is that genius theater making or is it mildly like, you know, salacious or some something. accusations yeah. that it's a little sophomoric to sort of go, okay, what if Nora 15 years later? Yeah. But it's delightful to see that performance. Yeah. And actually, when I first read this, I had the reaction of like, mm, eh, it's kind of trite. But listening to you read it, I'm uh, in love with this poem now, right? Like it transforms me. So that's my two cents. Lucas Knath, Doll's House Part Two, and The Giving Tree. Yeah. Discuss. I kind of like the way. Um, um, I like the way that it seems to be about somebody who thinks that they can do something to make somebody love them. Mm-hmm. And it's so real when you're in that mindset. And then, but if the truth is, the more you like them, the less they like you. <laughs> and I really, the only thing I don't really like about the poem I, is, yet she has no. Let's see, in ways you never do, so trust. But when she tells you she has no need for a needy boy like you, I kind of just wish that last line was clipped because we know he's needy. We don't need to be told he's needy. Mm-hmm. No need for you. To me, that would be, oh, that would, that mm-hmm. last note would ring a little more true since I already know this person is so needy. Um, oh, but I like the music of it, right? Yeah. And again, it's only the the, or, the orality of the poem, right? There's a there's a. I mean, yeah, it's not a deal breaker. Yeah, yeah. I mean, for me, my, my, what I don't like is that I, I love it when it moves <laughs> to other places. When it seems like it's mm-hmm. the tree of knowledge. When it seems like it's the Garden of Eden. Mm-hmm. Like I, I'm, I'm really enjoying that meditation mm-hmm. on a tree that has given something 
Um, and then it's okay to personify. But as long as it's attached to the Shel Silverstein book, it feels like a complete refusal of the actual treat. Mm -hmm. So this whole notion that she doesn't care for your gifts, she wonders why you beg and grovel. He never begs or grovels. Mm -hmm. right. I mean, that's not in the book. Mm -hmm. And the notion that the tree um, doesn't do what the tree does mm -hmm. is necessary for the poem to work. And that really bothers me. Right. <laughs> well, but I think that I'd go back yeah. to what Marion said, that the speaker is projecting his or her own right. bullshit on the tree. That we don't know for sure that the tree, she's here for a reason, but that reason isn't you. All of this anger isn't really coming from the tree. It's coming from the speaker. The speakers, right? right? The tree. So I, the tree could be Shel Silverstein's giving so tree, and it's just this other person is like tired of the tree. So instead of engaging with the actual you know, it's yeah. disturbing yeah. in the book. It refuses what happened of the and says, no, right. I, I refuse the book. What happened in the book didn't happen, right. and I'm going to retell it the way that I think it should be retold. Right. And I think that, that this is a very common um, approach to that book, where it's just mm -hmm. a simple refusal mm -hmm. of what actually happens. And I think that's, right. that, that, that bothers me. I, mm -hmm. I can't quite get in with that. Okay, help me with this part, too, because this was interesting to me. The junk hidden in her trunk is just squirrels' nests and fairy bones. So it's, you know, like in a way it's saying she's just a tree. Stop putting all this on the tree, right? But squirrelsness and fairy bones mm -hmm. puts the magic back in. Well, and there's a fabulousness, right? right? So she has junk in her trunk, so she's like a sexy tree. Uh, <laughs> there's fairy bones, there's squirrels. Yeah. Right? Like, like it's, it's this projection of this really fantastic, sexy, magical life that's just not there. Right, yeah. and, and it's done in order to refuse what the tree actually does in the story. Yeah. And so, grappling with what the tree actually does is very hard. Yeah, so I want, so I, I hear you on that, right? So it's like, what is the relationship between the poem and that or text, right? Like, in, is it like a faithful rendering of it? Is it ekphrastic or is it doing like some other thing entirely, right? And I wonder if the problem's like in the title. Then, and I'm gonna go back to the Doll's House part two for a moment. Right. It's Doll's House part two, right? So it's very clear from the start that this is like Nat's invention and meditation on what might be right right right, so, right. Like, the giving tree is speaking shell silverstein's title and it doesn't give the the reader any sense of the relationship between the text and then this meditation or ekphrastic right. bang that's happening right. on the page but for me the junk in the trunk moment was the one moment where i sort of like winced in the poem because that feels like such like contemporary contemporary vernacular like not shell silverstein's language in a way right, but that's there's a bouncer earlier I know, but that's the point I wanted to make. That goes right back to this theatrical moment of like, like dealing with classics, but like, like, like threading through these like contemporary, contemporary vernacular phrases in order to like update and, or to confuse the viewer into thinking like, well, I don't know what time period this is. Is it faithful to the original or is right. it this now? And that seems to be kind of what's going on here as well. Like, is it Shell's universe, right? Or is it the universe of the poet inventing this tree as a, you know, pissed off person? Yeah. Her wood is her own, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? <laughs> I'm telling you, I, yeah, your reading of it, like, I'm, I kind of fell head over. Timber. <laughs> I don't know, I thought it was super bizarre, honestly, because, like, the, the way that the original poem is and the way that, it, like, 
it talks about the tree's relationship to the boy. It's like a very like mother. I think this is kind of what you were speaking yeah. on. Like it's a, it's a mother to child relationship. That's yeah. why she gives everything up for him. Right. And then this one kind of sounds like so you have a friend and like your friend is in an abusive relationship. That's like how you would see that relationship and how you would speak about it. But like that's not at all what the original was. So mm-hmm. it's kind of weird to like twist on it. Yeah. Thanks, Amber. That that. That, yeah, it does sort of like yeah, align with what Jason's mm-hmm. saying. It, it is hard to reconcile it. Is it, you know, but is it a, a, t- a problem of the title? Is that like a quick edit? So, right. Yeah, Could yeah, we ask for it. a title that would make it more clear that this mm-hmm. is my giving tree, mm-hmm. not the giving tree? Could, could right? this poem the just like lose the giving tree stuff and just make its own poem? Nah. Well, that I mean, that goes to that. <laughs> like, we have to already like, know the needy boy. No. Like, it's our friend. Yeah. yeah, I think we have to know the needy boy. There'd be it would be so contextual. Context- I think you're right. I, I sort of keep trying to pull out of mm-hmm. this this tree. That's well, when it says welcome your big leaves and weeping ones is a very direct eating reference, right? Yeah, absolutely. And like the bouncer and the burning ever turning sword is also like a that that has to do with hell, right? That like there's a Angel with the burning sword, the guards. I don't. I don't know. Like I, I don't, the bouncer and the burning sword made me think of like Dante's yeah. Inferno, but I'm just sort of like, you yeah, know, that's just like a loose, opaque reference rather than something that might be intentional there. But I wonder, is that part of this for Christian iconography that there's an angel, a bouncer angel with a burning that sword? Oh, dear loyal listeners, um, we are all sorry. heathens, all of us. <laughs> Uh, but no, I, I mean, that, that's the thing is I really like it when it gets into another yeah. text. And it's not that I'm against reading something in a new way. I, and I love things which kind of play with biblical stories or which play with existing yeah. texts. Mm-hmm. But I think mm-hmm. that the way this one does it feels unethical to me. It mm-hmm. simply refuses what happens. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Yeah, not that the poet can't do that because the ambition's awesome, but right. signaling that it's being done is what's missing. Well, not saying that what's being done, but actually grappling with, rather than grappling with the fact that this is a very distressing story mm-hmm. um, about one party who sacrifices right. the entirety of her being right. for um, another person who continually goes away. And mm-hmm. in fact, like she sacrifices to let him go away. But the end of the story is that he returns and yeah. he sits mm-hmm. and, he sta- and, and they are together. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, 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 I mean, I think I, the other, the one that doesn't get discussed, it's also where she also has a story called Lacadio, the lion that shot back, mm-hmm. um, which is similarly disturbing, which mm-hmm. similarly kind of sets up these moral quandaries where it's very hard to parse the kind of um, moralism of it. Mm-hmm. And and I think that I, what I wanted was more struggle mm-hmm. and less refusal. Like mo- like I wanted yeah. more of a kind of like I see I see an understanding because it, it feels like what what the tree does in the story um, is disturbing. Mm-hmm. But I think to just say like and she didn't really want to do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's no evidence of that. There's no reason to think that. Mm-hmm. 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 Right, which might be a different poem. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. but so if the if John Blair's project is to focus on this imaginary version of the Giving Tree refusing, like to refuse, right? Like then that's the that's what this is. But I totally hear you on the the sort of elegance and complication of having dealt with the the woundedness in the center of that book, right? Yeah. Um, I hear you. Yeah. Okay. Okay.
I think we have to vote. Oh, I don't want to. <laughs> <laughs> All right, here oh, we go. Wait, hold on. Before we do, are we voting as is? Are we voting with the title change? What are we doing? Is it just as is or? I think it's as is, yeah? Do, do you have a edit to suggest? Uh, the giving tree refuses. Or the giving tree says no. Yeah, or something like she no. said, she wants a clue. She wants a cue. Right. Right. Yeah, so we can ask him for a cue. Yeah, so, but that's a different kind of conversation. So let's just vote as is, and, right? I don't know. No, At this part, no we've, we've done this on, on the podcast before. Yeah. Like, okay. you know, we can actually do two rounds, one with a new title, one with one as is. Okay, so right? let's vote as is first, okay. and then the second round vote would be. Okay. If necessary. Okay. Right? So as is. One, two, three, vote. Okay. Uh, that did not get in as is. How about with a title change? One, two, three, vote. And it's still not in. So we got one from John Blair. Thank you so much, John. And thanks for the um, heated conversation. Yes. Yeah. Inside it among us. So degrees is in from John Blair. Excellent. Thank you so much. Um, I think that is it for yeah. this episode. Yeah. So uh, thank you all so much, listeners. Uh, remember, you can continue this conversation, argue with us, agree with us, all of those things on all social media platforms, and um, share the podcast with others. And most importantly, keep reading. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much. <laughs>